My Govanen, welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and in this video I'm going to be talking about a little bit of Middle-earth history again. In this case, specifically, the island of Numenor. The island of Numenor, of course, is pretty important in the uh, Middle-earth universe because that's where Aragorn's ancestors are from, and there's a lot of things about Numenor that affect the broader Middle-earth history. The uh, overall history of the island of Numenor is really contained to the Second Age of Middle-earth, which is the age that we know the least about. Silmarillion covers the First Age, and Lord of the Rings occurs in the Third Age, and then the Second Age is kind of this in-between period where we really don't know much other than a few little jot-down annals that uh, Tolkien wrote in the appendices to the Lord of the Rings and a few other places. And most of that that we do know about the Second Age is related to Numenor in some way or another. So it ends up being pretty important for the Second Age and also important for the Third Age because of the effects it has in the Second Age. But in this video, I'm going to explore most of the important things about Numenor that you kind of at least need to know as a background for the Third Age. Warning, of course, there's going to be spoilers in here for anybody who hasn't read the Silmarillion uh, and also for those who haven't read the appendices to the Lord of the Rings or that sort of thing. So. If you're not that familiar with some of the material outside Lord of the Rings that pertains to Middle-earth and you don't want to be spoiled, stop watching before we go any further. That said, let's get to it. So the origins of Numenor begin in the either the end of the First Age or the beginning of the Second Age. It's not exactly 100% clear depending on how you count that. But the main point is the Silmarillion chronicles the story of the elves' attempt to regain three gems called Silmarils from Morgoth, who is essentially the devil of the Middle-earth universe. He's Sauron's boss. Sauron is powerful, but he's not as powerful as Morgoth. So if you get any idea of how powerful Sauron is in Lord of the Rings, magnify that a few times and you have Morgoth in the Silmarillion. So at the end of the Silmarillion, you've got a war that essentially brings all of the conflict to an end, and as part of that war over the course of history, you got man coming on the scene after elves. Some of the men fight on the side of elves. Some of the men fight on the side of Morgoth. Some of them just haven't even made it to the part of Middle-earth where all this is happening, and some of them just stay out because they don't want anything to do with it. The group of men who fight on the side of the elves become known as the Edine, which is just the plural for Adan, which is man, or it's actually technically second comer or, or after comer, which gets used to as the word for man because that's who they are. It's They came second after elves, but they, as a group, as a race, they're men. So the Edine are composed of three houses, and I won't get into the details there, but basically there's three houses that support the elves, several that don't. Um, and at the end of the war, when uh, everything is kind of brought to a close, the Valar, who are the kind of the archangels, more or less, who are in charge of uh, maintaining and protecting Middle-earth, <clears throat> they end up creating for the men who fought on the side of the elves an island out far to the west of Middle-earth called Numenor. 
And that, of course, is where uh, the Dunedain get their name because Dunedain means men of the west. So Numenor being out to the west of Middle-earth, the people of Numenor end up getting the name Dunedain. So that is why you get uh, Bilbo calling uh, the uh, Strider in Rivendell the Dunedain, and it's also why you see the term Dunedain pop up occasionally in the Lord of the Rings, because it's a general term to refer to anybody from or descended from Numenor. So that's kind of how Numenor got started. It's uh, a star-shaped island out in the middle of the ocean to the west of Middle-earth, and <clears throat> it was basically given to these men who fought on the side of the elves as a reward and a safe haven for them uh, outside of the the confines of Middle-earth where they might still be hated by a lot of the men and orcs and whatever that fought for Morgoth. And as a result of that, they grow up in a very different culture, and that affects a lot of the things about them, and that's what I'll get into in the next segment. So the interesting thing about Numenor being an island out in the middle of the ocean, uh, there's two major effects that come from that. The first and the most important is that the Numenorians become primarily known as mariners because they're surrounded by water and don't have a whole lot of land. I mean, it's a fairly decent-sized island, but it's still not as big as Middle-earth. Uh, they end up exploring Middle-earth by means of exploring the ocean, and that affects their culture to a large extent. It comes to a point where being a mariner is the most prestigious thing you can do as a Numenorean, and especially this gets started after one of the kings of Numenor, uh, whose name was Aldarion, who was kind of the first real person to push this idea of, you know, being a mariner in the royal household. So you've got all this emphasis on seafaring and whatnot, and there's even stories outside of um, the Lord of the Rings that talk about the men of Numenor exploring beyond what we know of uh, in Middle-earth from the Lord of the Rings. I mean, you, can, you can't really see what, what part of the world the Middle-earth inhabits, so to speak. You don't really know if the ocean goes around it or anything like that, but it does. And you actually get stories of the Numenorians sailing the ocean around what we know of as Middle-earth that contains Mordor and, and uh, the Misty Mountains and all that to the far side of whatever that continent is. And of course that makes sense because Middle-earth is our Earth. It's just a mythical prehistory version of it in, in Tolkien's Legendarium. So it's the same world, it just you know, we can't see exactly the shape of it at this point in the mythical prehistory, but it apparently does contain oceans very similar to ours that you can use to sail completely around continents, including whatever continent it is that has Mordor and Gondor and Rohan. So that's a big deal in, in those terms alone, that, you know, they end up landing in numerous places uh, in Middle-earth itself, some of the notable locations being uh, Umbar, which ends up being a haven for bad guys by the time Lord of the Rings happens, and that's a whole other video in and of itself, the history of how that happens. Um, they also have landings farther north, closer to where the elves are in Beleriand, I mean, not Beleriand, uh, Eriador, uh, and of course they meet up with 
Gilgalad, who is at that point the king of the elves, who is essentially Elrond's lord at that point. Elrond is kind of a second in command to Gilgalad. Gilgalad dies in the war against Sauron at the end of the Second Age. So they form an alliance with these elves at, at an earlier stage in the Second Age, but of course that continues up through the what is known as the Last Alliance, where they fight on the side of the elves against Sauron. But that happens much, much later. The other interesting thing about Numenor as a result of it being an island is the fact that it is far enough to the west that it is actually in sight of where the elves are out to the west. Of course, you know if you read The Lord of the Rings that the elves in Middle-earth are leaving via ships to go to the west where they can end up uh, going to what is known as the Undying Lands. Now, if you've only seen the movies and you don't really have a lot of knowledge of uh, reading it and whatnot, it's it's a little unclear how this works, but essentially there, there are two land masses out to the west that you can get to. One is Valinor, which that's the true Undying Lands. That's where the Valar reside. That's where most of the elves reside. Um, the elves that didn't either didn't come back to Middle Earth or, you know, well, they were all, they all sort of began in Middle Earth at some point, but the ones who didn't return to Middle Earth as part of the Silmarillion story, that's where they live. And then there's a second island called Tol Eresea, and Eresea is, it's, it's an island much like Numenor, and that's where the elves who um, came back from Middle Earth get to live. And there were already some elves there. Uh, there's there's three branches of elves, much like there's three houses of the Edine. And one of the houses of elves uh, are also very famous for their shipbuilding, and they live on that island because they love the sea so much. They also live on the shores of Valinor, but um, Erisea ends up becoming the home for the returned exiles who come back from Middle-earth to the west. So, as a result of this, the Numenorians end up having close relationships with the elves for most of the Second Age. They're very friendly with the elves, but they also kind of have this vision of what it could be like to be deathless. Now, the, as a result of the blessing of the uh, island of Numenor itself, they do have longer life as well. They're given longer lifespans by the Valar. In fact, the very first king, and I'll talk a little bit more about him in a minute, uh, lived 500 years. Aragorn lives 210 years, and by the time that happens, his is actually unusually long, um, and most Numenorean blood by that point was so diluted that nobody really lived longer than the average human in Middle-earth. But even in their prime, when they're living very long lifespans, and the king's household always had a longer lifespan than the average Numenorean even, um, but even even in that era when they had long lifespans and, and could do lots of things that the average man in Middle-earth couldn't do, they saw the elves and there was just a little hint of, you know, I'd like immortality too. And that ends up becoming important for the next stage in Numenorean history, which I'll get to in the next segment. So Numenor is, of course, the haven of the good men of Middle-earth. Now, there's still some men in Middle-earth who are um, not evil. So the 
ancestors of what we know of as the nation of Rohan in the, middle, in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, those men were not evil. They didn't sou- side with Sauron or Morgoth, but they weren't, you know, on the side of the elves in the Silmarillion. So naturally, this being the home of the good men of Middle-earth, the ones who helped to defeat Morgoth in the First Age, Sauron, who is still working in Middle-earth and trying to achieve his own goals, naturally doesn't like them. He also really hates them because at some point in the Second Age, they end up landing and making inroads into Middle-earth, which he wants to rule, and he knows that they're powerful enough that he can't defeat them outright, especially with the elves uh, who remain in Middle-earth on their side. So he has a huge amount of incentive to get rid of them somehow, Uh, and this ends up becoming important. Sauron, at different points in the Second Age, does attempt to wage war against uh, the people of Middle-earth, or at least um, build up his power so that he can do that, and the kings of Numenor kind of notice this because they've already you know, they have different seaports on Middle-earth, and they know what's going on, and one of them at some point gets it into their head that we don't really want Sauron doing this uh, because he's the bad guy and he's too powerful, so we're going to go and land in force and basically conquer him if we have to. Well, one of the kings does this, and eventually what happens is Sauron he gets smart. He doesn't try to fight the Numenorians because he doesn't really have the the sheer power to fight them at this stage. So what he does is he pretends to surrender, essentially. He goes out and humbles himself and basically says, okay, you win. Uh, and he's taken as a prisoner, willingly, but not known to the king of Numenor, back to Numenor itself. And through his wiles and his his cunning and evil, he ends up kind of becoming one of the key advisors to the king. Now you would think, right, that these guys would be smart enough to to realize, don't trust anything this 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 guy says. Don't trust Sauron. But because Sauron knows their weak point, which is their desire for immortality, he kind of plays on that and takes it as a way of, of getting in, in good with the king and trying to influence him as far as how to to run the nation and how to maybe try to achieve that goal of immortality. And there's a hint of like an Adam and Eve story here, even though Sauron is not the um, he's not the the, the devil in Middle Earth lore. But there's a a hint of that Adam and Eve type story here because he's essentially doing the same thing. Whereas in in Genesis, the devil is trying to tempt Eve with knowledge. In the Middle-earth lore, Sauron is trying to tempt the king of Numenor with immortality, which is the one thing that he knows that they can't get, that they really, really want. And by this point, a lot of Numenorians had become more corrupt over time. There was a set of uh, of Numenorians who remained friendly to the elves, but they became increasingly small in number and more and more had to hide their affinity for the elves. At some point in that history, it actually became a law that elves couldn't come to Numenor to visit, nor could anybody on uh, in, in Numenor seek to contact the elves. So 
this had already happened by the time Sauron came and was trying to weasel his way in, which is why it was easy for him to do so, because it was already becoming a more corrupt society. And at the time that Sauron becomes a key advisor, we're talking about the last king of Numenor. This is when things about are about to come to a head. And the way that happens is Sauron gets the king of Numenor to actually start, uh, well, he gets him to build a, a temple, which is a very nasty temple, even from the point of view of aesthetics, if you read the story. But its purpose is to do human sacrifice, essentially. And Sauron is using this as a way of kind of saying this is part of how you get to the the stage where you can have immortality. And of course, the people who were sacrificed are invariably, or almost invariably, the friends of the elves. So he's using this as both a way to further corrupt the, those who are already corrupt and to get rid of enemies of his that he knows are still on the island that still have a you know substantial sway. So that's happening, and at some point... He eventually tells the king of um, Numenor, look, you are so powerful now that you could actually just go take immortality by force if you wanted to. You have a huge navy. You have a huge army. All you have to do is go and land on Valinor and take it for your own, and then you will have immortality. So the king, of course, being the corrupt fool that he is, decides, you know what? He's right, because... I am so proud and so uplifted in my own mind that I am going to just go take immortality from the Valar. And of course, behind all of this, Sauron is basically pointing to Morgoth as kind of like the secret god that nobody talks to you about that is the true god, but everybody's trying to fool you. So that's, that's all in the background. So what happens is the king of Numenor prepares a huge fleet to go and land on Valinor. And this is where it starts to get really interesting. The uh, the remaining friends of the elves are led by Elendil, which of course you may know is Aragorn's ultimate ancestor, that who is the father of Isildur. And they, in their own, they know what's going on, and so they can kind of see what's happening. And when they find out that the king of Numenor is about to do this really, really terrible thing. They're about to break the, the ban of traveling too far to the west that the Valar have set on them because they're not allowed to go to the elves uh, themselves. They can receive visits from the elves. They can't go to the elves because it is the Undying Lands. So they see this about to happen and they know that something really terrible has to result from this because they know, of course, that Sauron is lying and that the Valar are actually in control, and they really are going to carry through with whatever they have in mind if the men of Numenor break the rules. So they get their own ships ready to sail to the east, to Middle-earth, and on that note, that's where essentially we get the, the uh, kingdoms of Gondor and Arnor. Uh, what happens is the king of Numenor sails to the west with his huge navy, and meanwhile, the the people of Elendil and Isildur and their followers, they're getting ready to sail east. And when the king of Numenor sets foot on Valinor, what happens is you have an Atlantis moment. And I'll explain that in a little bit. Um, the Atlantis moment is the, the 
land land mass underneath Numenor splits, you get a huge tidal wave that just sinks the, the island. And as a result of the tidal wave, you also get kind of a backwash that pushes Elendil and Isildur and all of their folk all the way to Middle Earth on, you know, a, a fast-moving tidal wave. So this ends up sinking the Armada. We don't really know what happens to the king of uh, Numenor since he had already set foot on Valinor. Presumably he was just killed somehow or other, either through supernatural means or just captured and executed. Who knows? But the Armada is sunk, the island of Numenor is sunk, and the ships that Elendil and Isildil had were pushed all the way to Middle-earth. As a result of the island of Numenor sinking, Sauron, who remained on the island, also was destroyed. And that's why, for a long time after this happens, you don't really see too much of anything happening. He's substantially weakened by that. He does end up waging war against men and elves again before Elendil and Isildur die, but he is destroyed physically as a result of the the cataclysm that he himself brought on and has to flee in spirit back to Mordor. So once Elendil and Isildur land, they set up the kingdoms of Gondor and Arnor. Arnor is the kingdom in the north, and that's where Aragorn's uh, ancestors are, you know, from. So Gondor ends up being controlled by Isildur and his brother Anarion. Uh, Elendil at first has control of the kingdom of Arnor, but then at what ends up happening is after Elendil dies, Isildur uh, leaves the rule of Gondor to um, actually his nephew because his brother dies in the war as well, and then he goes to rule Arnor. And so that's why Isildur is Aragorn's ancestor, and Aragorn is from the north area, which was Arnor. Another series of events leads to the demise of the North Kingdom of Arnor, and I can't get into that here. But that essentially is how the kingdoms of men in Middle-earth get set up, and that's why we have Gondor in the first place. So that's kind of a second age overview of what Numenor is. Now I just want to go into some of the more interesting points that I didn't get to touch on just yet, but which do actually make a big difference in terms of understanding how all this plays into the overall mythology. So you remember how I mentioned that I was going to talk about the first king of Numenor. The first king of Numenor was actually Elrond's brother. In the Silmarillion, Elrond and his brother Elros were the sons of Erendil, who is the half-man, half-elf uh, person who ends up kind of bringing about the final battle that ends the war of the Silmarillion. And he does that by essentially sailing into the west and, and pleading with the Valar, please let just bring this to an end because everything is about to be destroyed. The elves are about to be wiped out. The men are about to be wiped out. Um, but Elrond and Elros are the sons of him, of, of Arendil, and as a result, they are also half-man, half-elf. And as a result of that, the Valar, at the end of the First Age, give them each a choice because you're half-man and half-elf. You can choose either to stay with the race of men or the race of elves. Elrond, of course, chose to remain with the elves, That's and he lives all the way through the Second Age, all the way through the Third Age, and eventually sails away with Frodo and Gandalf and Bilbo at the end of the Lord of the Rings story. 
So he has seen essentially two-thirds of the history of Middle-earth in his own lifetime. And his brother Elros, on the other hand, ends up choosing to remain with the race of men. It's not really explained why this is, um, but he does. And he ends up living about 500 years, and it makes sense that the king's household in Numenor was so long-lived because more so than other men, they had elvish blood in them. I say more so, the other men in Numenor didn't have elvish blood, but the descendants of Elros, and therefore the, the, the royal house generally, had this elven blood in them, which allowed them to live longer than average men, even average men in Numenor. And Aragorn is a descendant of that first king because through the years, of course, you get different branches of royal households, just like you have different branches in, say, the British royal household. You know, you have your your dukes and duchesses and different branches of the royal family, Elendil was a an indirect descendant of one of the kings of, well, I say indirect. He just wasn't the primary heir to the throne line of uh, the kings of Numenor. And so Elendil is descended from Elros, and therefore so is Aragorn. So Aragorn has this same um, elven heritage in his own uh, genealogy, and that's of course, explains why he lives so long. It also explains why he and Arwen are actually relatives, because his great-great-great-great-however-many-greats uh, grandfather is the brother of Elrond. So, I mean, they're actually some kind of cousin X number of times removed. And that's important for all kinds of reasons. It, it's, it explains why Elrond was so willing to take him in and foster him, which you might not know if you didn't read the appendices. Um, but it explains all kinds of things. It explains, in fact, it, it even explains to a large extent why the royal uh, people of the, of the Numenorean line are all dark-haired and gray-eyed because it all goes back to that same that same look. Beren was a dark-haired, gray-eyed person. Luthien was dark-haired. I don't remember the color of her eyes. Um, but Elrond is the same. He has dark hair, gray eyes. Um, uh, Arwen. Brain fart. Arwen has the same, you know, basic look. Dark hair, gray eyes, maybe blue eyes. Can't remember for sure. But the point is, they all have that same aesthetic going because they're all descended from the same people. So, uh, that explains quite a lot about, just in general, the family history. Uh, the other interesting thing I wanted to point out was, uh, I mentioned earlier that Numenor had an Atlantis moment, and that is not by accident. Numenor is Atlantis, essentially, and I've mentioned this in some previous videos. Lewis and Tolkien had a, an agreement where Tolkien would write a time travel story, and Lewis would write a space travel story. Lewis ended up writing what we know of as the Space Trilogy. Tolkien never finished his story, which is unfortunate because it would have been interesting to see how that worked out, but his um, time travel story was going to be called The Lost Road. He got several chapters into it, and Christopher Tolkien later published those chapters in The Lost Road and other writings, which is volume five of the History of Middle-Earth series. And so you can pick that up and read that, and I do recommend it because it does give you an interesting idea of where the story was kind of headed. The basic premise of the story is that a person in modern-day England is kind of getting some kind of inspirations of the Elven language 
and he doesn't know where it's coming from or anything like that. And so he's eventually actually visited in a vision or a dream by Elendil himself and given the option to go back in time and see the downfall of Numenor. And so the story was going to be about an Atlantis. It, it really was explicitly going to be about an Atlantis-type event. And as a result of that, it ends up, of course, playing out like Atlantis. Now, of course, it's, again, this is a mythical prehistory for our Earth, so it makes sense that if there's a legend of Atlantis in our world, that there would be some kind of mythical uh, prehistorical event that actually happened analogous to the Atlantis legend. And the other interesting thing about this is it also is partially derived from Tolkien's own dreams. And I think I mentioned this in a previous video as well, that uh, the dream that Faramir has that he tells Frodo about of standing on a cliff and seeing a huge wave coming and he's not really able to turn around or do anything about it, uh, that is a dream of Tolkien's that he gave to Faramir, which in the movie for some reason ends up being given to Eowyn, if you've seen the extended version, doesn't really make much sense in, in the context of the movie well, how they did that. It's just they added kind of for dramatic flair, and that's really all it's for. Um, but the dream itself he bequeaths to Faramir, and of course Faramir, that makes sense because he also is a descendant of Numenor. But the main point is at at that point, you know, Tolkien is essentially giving this dream of a an island drowning to Faramir, and that influences his story of Numenor. It's like he has this Atlantis-like dream, and so he gives that to Faramir, turns it into, and of course he does this before he even writes Lord of the Rings. He starts The Lost Road much earlier than that, but he, uh, he uses that dream as part of his mythology of the Numenor Atlantis part of his Middle-earth legendarium. So there's a lot of interesting connections going on with Numenor. It's, it's very much a personal thing with Tolkien because it has this dream aspect to it. It also has the connection of being a mythical prehistorical event that matches with our own legend of Atlantis, and it ends up affecting the Third Age. And the fact that he writes about Numenor before he even gets to the Third Age is what makes it even more interesting because if he hadn't already had that agreement with Lewis and started that story, we wouldn't have a Numenor in Middle-earth. And so the Lord of the Rings would have been an incredibly different story because you wouldn't have even had uh, an Aragorn who was the descendant of kings from Numenor to begin with. You might have still had an Aragorn, but he wouldn't have been the same person at all. And so there's all kinds of interesting connections because ultimately the island of Numenor and how that all plays out. That's the connection between Baron and Luthien and Aragorn at the end. So you would have had to have changed the entire set of Aragorn's history if you didn't have that Numenor legend. So it's really interesting how all these different things play into Tolkien's legends uh, and, and the myths that he created. So that's more or less kind of the interesting side notes about Numenor that I wanted to bring out. And that'll pretty much wrap up my video here, because that kind of gives the broad overview. I may eventually go back and do some more detailed videos, but for now, that's kind of the broad overview that I wanted to give for those of you who may not know that much about Numenor, but want to know without having to read 
you know, the Silmarillion and other parts of the Legendarium that you may not have ready access to. Okay, so that was a long video, longer than I really anticipated, and I, I hope you stuck with me through to the end because I think this really is an interesting topic. Um, and if you did like the video, please like it and share it with your friends. If you uh, want to learn more about Middle-earth history or anything related to Tolkien, please subscribe to the channel. You can also follow me on Twitter at JRRTLore. And until next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek signing out for the Tolkien Lore channel. Namadiyeh.